You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 23 this morning. So almost the entire chapter, verse 24 kind of starts on a, on a new thought. So we're going to start, start at or stop at 23. Uh, if you've been with us in this series in 1 John, we've titled it, The DNA of a Relationship with Jesus. In other words, knowing for certain that we're saved in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, It's important for us to have assurance. It's important for us to be able to live our lives knowing that we're saved. And the reason why is because if you're not assured of something, then you're constantly second guessing. Or perhaps you're trying to earn things. Or you have a wrong perspective of God because you need to be in his good graces in order to get stuff from him. And the beauty of what 1 John teaches us is that we can be assured of our salvation through a relationship with him. What does that look like? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Right off the bat, here's what I love that John is doing in chapter 3. Is he says this, The love that the Father has placed on you makes you a what? A child of God, which means this. It's his work. It's not yours. It's about his righteousness, not your righteousness. It's about him sending his son to die and to be raised, not about you doing a bunch of good things. That alone, right off the bat, should encourage us tremendously. It's God's work, not yours. That brings assurance of salvation. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, there are times where when I sin or when I make mistakes, we'll talk about the difference here in just a little bit. um, I can go, man, God, are you even using me? That was the worst sermon ever. Or I can't believe I said that. Or it's not my work. It's his work that brings me assurance of my salvation. We are called to participate in that work. And John today is going to unpack what does, it look when the lo- what does it look like when the love of Christ abides in us? How should we expect to see that working in our lives? There's a lot of counterfeit love in the world, isn't there? How do we distinguish what is true love? How do we have understanding what is the difference between Christ's love and the world's love? And it begins with it's his work not our work. That's the foundation that we're building off of today. The Father has bestowed his love on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. When we think about this concept that the creator of the universe... God made mankind, men and women, in his own image. The savior of the world came to earth. And what does it say? The world did not recognize him. It did not recognize him because it did not have a relationship with him. 
But here's the beauty of what John is saying. Verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John says this, church family, you're here this morning. You made today, this time, a priority. The world is not in church today. The world is doing their own thing. The world is self-seeking. God's people come to make the worship of him and the fellowship with the brethren a priority. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be like, which means this. I am still a work in progress. Amen? Amen. (laughs) I am still a work in progress. As a parent, I have to remind myself about this with my kids, right? Because if I hold them to an expectation of perfection, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. I have to remember, I am a work in progress. It has not yet been revealed what I will fully be like, but I do know this according to verse 2. When Jesus returns and he is revealed, we will be like who? We will be like him. Which means this, as we grow, as we progress, As we walk deeper in relationship with him, we will become more like Christ. Not in perfection on this side of eternity. We will still sin. We will still fall short. But there will be transformational changes that don't just take place on the inside, but that is noticeable on the outside. And this is what John is going to talk to us about this morning. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope... What hope? That you are a child of God being formed and molded into the likeness of Jesus. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Well, wait a minute. I don't purify myself, right? I don't save myself from my sins. That's not what John is saying. When he says to purify ourselves, here's what it means. When I love God so much that I want to do things his ways, The more I follow his ways, the more I walk in what in my own life? In purity. The more I pursue righteousness instead of sinfulness. The more I pursue serving God and others instead of serving myself. Therefore, the more I abide in my relationship with Jesus, the more I can expect to walk in purity, not in perfection, but becoming more and more like Jesus because of the relationship that I have with him. Are you with me this morning? All right, here we go. Verse four, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Uh, Sometimes to understand the good news, we need to understand the bad news first. And here's the bad news. If you commit sin, you also break God's what? You break God's law. That's true for every single one of us in here, is it not? Uh, In 1 John chapter 1, John says, if we say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves and we are a liar. And then it goes on to say that we even make God a liar if we say we have no sin. Hey, if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, nope, I am a sinner. You know what that means? You are saved. Isn't that amazing how God has done that in our relationship with him? When our heart convicts us, 
When our sin condemns us and we go, oh God, I'm so sorry. I did that again. Forgive me. That gives us assurance of what? Our salvation. Because earlier in 1 John, it says that when we confess our sins, he is what church? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Amazing how God can take even the thing that separates mankind from him. And when it condemns or convicts our heart, it reminds us that we are saved, which is why we ask for forgiveness, which is why we repent. Verse five, and you know that he, meaning Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Uh, Most of us know this truth, but it's worth the repeating. There's a reason why John is putting it in here. Listen, Jesus wasn't revealed to the world so that we could have a happier life. Jesus wasn't revealed to the world so that we could get what we want, so that he could be the genie in whose lamp we rub. He didn't come into the world to give us ease or to give us Um, a simple life to where we could just pick up seashells on the beach all day. He gave us himself to do what? To take away our sin. That was his mission. That is his purpose. It, It affirms what the angel told to Joseph all the way back in Matthew chapter one, verse 21. You will have a son. You will name him Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. This word in the Greek to take away is Iro, which means this. It means to bear the burden for somebody else. It means to remove or to pick up and carry off. That's what Jesus came to do is to take away, to bear away our sins. And the beauty of who Jesus is, is we are taught that there is no sin in him. Amen. Picture yourself in a landslide and you end up at the bottom of the hill and this massive boulder has now crushed your legs. You're still alive, but you're stuck and you can't get that boulder off of you. What's the only way you're going to get rescued? (laughs) Some of you are like, well, I got to think about this. (laughs) Do I have a stick of dynamite? (laughs) First service is always coming up with cool ideas. The only way we can be rescued is if someone stronger than us or with the right equipment comes and does what? Lifts the boulder off of us. This is what Christ came to do. That is why he came to earth. To take away our sins, to lift off this heavy burden. Verse 6 says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Great googly moogly. We're going to have to unpack that one, aren't we? Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Well, John makes a pretty big statement here in verse six, doesn't he? He says, whoever abides in him does not what? Sin. 
Well, shucks, church. Um, what does John mean? Does he mean literally like if you sin one more time, you don't abide in Christ? Is that what he means? <laughs> no, you can say that emphatically. Well done. And here's why. Because we're always going to be sinners. It's the beauty of the first three verses of chapter three. Beloved, what manner of love God has bestowed on you to be called children of God. It's not your work, it's his. What he is saying is this. For those whose hearts don't condemn them. For those who are not repentant. For those who continue in their sinful ways and deceive themselves by going, I don't have any sin to ask for forgiveness for. I don't need a savior. I'm not stuck under that boulder. I'm perfectly fine. That's what John means by those who are not abiding in him. Look at verse 6 again. Whoever abides in him does not sin, meaning does not sin repetitively without asking for repentance. Do you understand the difference, church? One is a pattern, a lifestyle, a way of life. The other is, oh, God, I sinned again. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And then the truth of God's word washes over us again. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Whoever abides in him does not sin, meaning for those who are repentant. For those who are seeking the purity of God's ways. We no longer live in the pattern of this world, but according to God's righteousness, not self-righteousness, according to God's righteousness. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. Our patterns of behavior reveal the master of our soul. Our patterns of behavior reveal the master of our soul. Do you belong to Jesus or do you belong to Satan? Well, can there be a third option? No, there is not. We are either of our father in heaven or we are of the father, the devil. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. This is strong language from John, but it makes verses one through three so much more rich to be called a child of God is not just some whimsical identity. It means that you are saved for eternity, even though you're still a sinner, because it's about his work and not ours. Amen. Amen. Verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, meaning Jesus, is righteous. Uh, we've talked about this before in John. Our righteousness is not our own works in which then God declares us righteous because we've done enough good things. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air, which is just another title for Satan, trapped in this world, dead in our sin. And then verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2 is, but God, rich in mercy and because of his great love for us. Oh, he bought us with a high price. The righteousness that we have is whose righteousness? 
It's God's righteousness. It's putting on the character of Jesus, which he already has given to us. So that when that character is put on, what kind of works do we do? We do good ones. We do righteous ones. Not because we have to, to earn God's favor. But because he has already done that work and made it possible for us to actually do good things by putting on the character of Christ. Do not be deceived. If you look at your life, how many of you are your worst critic? Raise your hand if that's you. That's probably most of us. Some of you are like, no, it's the person next to me that's my worst critic. (laughs) If you take inventory of your life, And I'm not talking about saved by works. I'm talking about going, I know that I have a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus because when I sin, I ask for forgiveness and I'm convicted and I see the fruit of what God's character is doing in my life. You can have assurance that you are saved. Again, not because of your work, but because of Christ's work in you in which now you're working out of that. It's like if someone were to hand you a million dollars and say, now go spend this in amazing ways on other people. You've already been gifted what you need to go and bless others. That's the work of Christ. You've been given what you need so that you can now live a life following in his ways instead of having to earn it or trying to deserve it. Verse 8 says, he who sins is of the devil, meaning The pattern of sin, non-repentance, continuing to do what is evil, not being convicted of sin. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Yes, he has been self-righteous. Yes, he has been self-promoting. Yes, he has sought self-glory since the very beginning, which is why he was booted from God's kingdom in the first place. For this purpose, because of Satan's sinfulness which has been inherited by mankind for this purpose. The son of God, meaning Jesus was manifested or revealed that he might destroy the works of the devil. Uh, When it comes to this word, the works of the devil, here's what it means. The devil's business, um, his product, what he's producing on a constant basis. And what is it that Satan is always producing in the lives of people? Sin. Jesus came to take away our sin and he came to destroy the product of the devil in our life. He does that by his work, not our own. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write down that Jesus came to destroy the power and the presence of sin. Jesus came to destroy the power and the presence of sin. In verse 5, we see that Jesus' mission was to take away our sins. And in verse 8, it is added to, he comes to destroy the works of the devil. Here's why that's so important. Can we destroy the works of the devil on our own? It's not possible. The power of sin literally holds us captive until we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ through the cross and through his resurrection. If I could simplify it even more, it would be this. It's impossible for us to say yes to what is right and no to sin without Jesus in our life. It's not possible. We will always do what is self-serving. 
We will always do what is self-glorifying. We will always do what is self-promoting. And if people go, no, 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 I don't do that. First John chapter one already talks about that. They what? They deceive themselves because they say they have no sin. And Jesus comes to destroy the power of sin. Look at Romans chapter six, verses five and six. Let's read this all in one big voice. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Paul affirms in Romans, Jesus has come to destroy the power of sin by living a sinless life. And in that sinless life, he became sin for us so that God's wrath would be placed upon him on the cross. And that at his resurrection, he would literally overcome the power of sin, which leads to death. Therefore, In a relationship with Jesus, we are able to say no to sin and yes to what pleases God. Which means this. Every time you do something that pleases God, you should be reminded of what? That you are a child of God. You are saved. And here's the beauty of how this keeps us in check. If we do good things and we go, I'm amazing. That's self-righteousness. We're going to see that that would be Cain in the story of Cain and Abel. But if we do a good work, if we do something that pleases God, we should in turn go, oh, God, thank you that I can say yes to your ways because the power of sin no longer has hold on my life. I am definitely saved because I couldn't do that without you. Do you see how God is constantly in the business of affirming our salvation regularly? Not just on Sunday mornings, but it should be in a daily walk with him. When I do something right, God, thank you, I can do something right. It's because I'm saved. When I sin, Lord, please forgive me. And he goes, I do forgive you, and I know that I'm saved. Anywhere you turn as a follower of Christ, you should be reminded that you are a child of God. Encouraging? What about the presence of sin? Jesus came to destroy the power of sin to where I don't have to say yes to sin anymore. Well, what about the presence of sin? Well, if I don't have to say yes to the presence of, or the power of sin in my life, what starts to not be in my life as much? Sin. It just becomes less and less because I now have the power in Christ, not myself, in Christ, to say yes to his ways which means I say no to the ways of sin and Satan. This is the beauty of what God has done for us. Jesus came to destroy the power and the presence of sin. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, meaning God's seed remains in us, And we do not sin because we have been born of God. We literally get this term born again from passages like this. And it simply means, we talked about this last week. When a child is born of you, 
hopefully. Who do they look like? They look like you. They have your features. They have your demeanor. Sometimes they have your walk or your voice. Or they inherit the sinful traits that we all have, right? When we are born of God, we don't walk in the sinful patterns that we used to anymore. Do we still sin? Yes, but what does it look like when we sin? Are we repent and we turn to God and he affirms that we are forgiven. But when we are born in the likeness, when we are born again in Christ, we see Christ's character being manifested or revealed in our life. I want to encourage you. If you're here today and you're like, JC, listen, I'm struggling with self-promotion at work. I'm struggling with pornography that I can't seem to get away from. I'm struggling with being kind to my wife. Uh, I just can't seem to say an encouraging word. I'm bitter all the time. Here's my encouragement to you. You do not fit in the category of being of the devil if you continue to repent of your sin. Be encouraged. If you know that what you're doing is wrong and you continue to come to Christ and go, God, I hate this. I'm grieved, but I feel like I, I can't get out. Will you help me? That's the sign that you are what? That you are saved. And that through repentance, he is faithful and just to forgive even the 10,000th time. But if you find yourself in the category of, yeah, you know what? I just kind of gave up on that and just is what it is. And I don't really ask for forgiveness anymore. Consider the pattern of behavior revealing the master of your soul. Come back to Christ in repentance. Ask for forgiveness. Keep struggling. At least in a struggle, you're pursuing what is right, even though the flesh is strong. Are you with me, church family? Verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or are revealed. It's evident who they belong to. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. A really interesting, something that John does here. He chooses to put both righteousness and love in the same sentence. He basically says, hey, we're going to know if you're of Christ because how you live your life is going to speak to Jesus. If you're of the devil, your life is going to be reflective of a lot of sinful patterns and behavior without repentance, but thinking that you're self-righteous, thinking that you're amazing. And John says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Um, I love that John puts righteousness and love in the same breath. And here's why this is important. Um, how many of you, when it comes to like games, like pickleball or board games or sports, you are a rule follower to the nth degree? Raise your hands. <laughs> wow. So pickleball, once we get it up in the parking lot, it's going to be super fun. That was out. No, it's not. You didn't raise your hand on Sunday. It was in. <laughs> Forgiveness, yes. When we consider righteousness and love, if you only have righteousness, 
It may be that it's self-righteousness. It's just rules and religion and following this certain law and crossing these T's and dotting these I's. And if all you have is righteousness, but you don't have love, you end up being a religious Pharisee. You become obsessed with, look how good I do this. And we see that in the Gospels with Jesus, right? He's constantly talking to the religious leaders of his day. And they're like, hey, we tithe our mint and our dill and our cumin. We tithe literally out of the spice garden that sits in our windowsill. And Jesus is like, wow, that's crazy. (laughs) It's not about following the rules in righteousness, meaning self-righteousness. We are righteous because of his righteousness so that every time we do what's right we point to christ instead of ourselves so that when someone goes well how do you know that you're saved you don't go because i'm amazing we go because christ is amazing and look what he's done with my life this is where i used to be and this is the transforming work he's doing it's still going on i'm still a work in progress But he has made radical changes in my life, which are evident because of what he has done, not because of what I have done. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Love is important. Love is what Jesus came to reveal to the world, what real love actually looked like. And righteousness cannot live apart from love because the love of Christ is rooted in what? In righteousness. In what it means to be true. Consider this for just a moment. When Jesus left heaven to come to earth, that in itself was a massive sacrifice. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 talks about this. The humility of Christ. His willingness to leave his place of glory. What we sang this morning, hallelujahs being sung to him 24-7, deserving all honor and praise and glory. He left that place to come to earth and to have a body just like ours that got sick or that got scrapes and bruises to have emotions, to know what it was like to lose a dad at a young age, to be betrayed by friends, to be hated by the very people that he came to save without love. Could you imagine if Jesus only came in righteousness? He would be unapproachable. He would be someone that we couldn't have relationship with because he would be so far above us That there would be no way for us to be able to have relationship with him. But instead, he left heaven and came to earth, lived a sinless life. And in that righteousness, he loved us well, didn't he? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love God because what? He loved us first. This is love coupled with righteousness. When I think about marriage relationships or between parents and kids, if I only bring the righteousness, man, that's going to be a tough standard to live up to, especially when you're living with an unrighteous person like me. But when I bring love and expect 
my kids to do what is right. There's forgiveness. There's compassion. And here's how that transforms into our daily life with our coworkers or our neighbors or our family or friends that are not believers in Christ. Too often the Christian message, which is not accurate and not the gospel, says this. Oh, you're gay? Well, you need to be straight. Oh, you're liberal? Well, you need to be conservative. Oh, you like the Raiders? Well, you should like the Chargers. Whatever it might be. And we come up with this, you have to. Wait a minute. First and foremost, what do people need the most? They just need a savior because no different than us, they're trapped under that rock. And unless somebody comes and lifts it up, it doesn't matter what they try to do in their own righteousness. It won't be enough. This is why it matters to us as we minister to other people. It should take us from a place of condemnation and judgment and instead to a place of compassion to go those who walk in darkness, those who are of the devil, me wagging my finger at them and telling them to get their life together, to get cleaned up, will do absolutely nothing. Me taking the love of Christ that has been gifted to me and attempting to pour that into somebody else is the way that someone will experience the love of Jesus. Do you understand the difference? Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In other words, it's really important what our relationships look like. When Carlsbad looks at the mission church, when they drive by, when they come to an outside church event, um, <laughs> How many of you participated in summer nights at uh, Moonlight Beach? The last one that we did was phenomenal. Um, we had a group to our left smoking a lot of weed. <laughs> and we had a group to our right playing volleyball where there were rear end cheeks everywhere. And then there's the mission church right in the middle. <laughs> now, were we different? I hope so. I hope so. But here's the beauty. It's not that people go, oh, you just think you're better than us. We can go, absolutely not. We are you. But now because we have Jesus Christ, because of his righteousness, things have started to change in our life. We're not looking to counterfeit Holy Spirits to make us feel better. We're not needing to parade our bodies around to get affirmation. This is the work of Christ in us, not the work of my self-righteousness making me so good. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should love one another differently from the way that the world does. What does this love look like? Well, sometimes helping in understanding to know what something does look like, you got to understand what it doesn't. And apparently that's what John wants to do. So look at verse 12. He says, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love the brethren or one another. 
He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John intentionally takes us to this story of Cain and Abel. By show of hands, how many of you are relatively familiar with the story of Cain and Abel? That's most of you. Here's why John takes us here. We know, based on the story, that both men brought sacrifices to God. One was accepted, Abel. One was not accepted, Cain. And here is why. Because Cain was self-righteous. And Abel was a sinner saved by grace. And I'm sure it looked like something like this. Abel brought his sacrifice to God and went, God, I know that I sin against you. I'm so sorry. I'm so thankful that you make a way for me to be in relationship with you. Your love is so incredible. I brought you the best because I want you to have the best. Not because I have to, but because I want you to have the best. You deserve it. Look what you've done for me. The least I can do is give you the best. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. Why? Because he was self-righteous. How do we know that he was self-righteous? Because he simply brought some of what he had. It wasn't the best of what he had. And if Cain were like his brother, he would have gone, God, I want to give you the best. Because you gave me your best. The least I can do is give you this meager offering. But Cain was deceived. And he chose not to give God his best because he didn't believe that he had what? Sin to be forgiven for. He thought he could just go through the motions. He thought he could just show up to church and live an untransformed life the rest of the week and come back again on Sunday. And God calls Cain out. And notice this, at the beginning of this story, does Cain hate his brother? Is there any indication that he wants to murder Abel? No. But do you see where self-righteousness leads? In his self-righteousness, it led him to murderous thoughts because he became jealous of his brother who simply was walking in God's ways. It turned him into a murderer. We see this throughout the scriptures. It's one thing for the religious leaders to go, hey, Jesus, we don't agree with you. It's a whole other thing for them to be the instigators and the insiders at the trial of Pilate in which they're screaming and riling up the crowds, crucify him, crucify him. They were already self-righteous, but where did it lead them? To be murderers. Because that is what the work of sin and the devil do in our life. It is a slippery slope. I have this quote from C.S. Lewis from the screw tape letters. It says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. In other words, one concession here, a little guilty pleasure there, not needing repentance here, And before we know it, we're living a life and a pattern that is after Satan instead of Christ. Now remember, John is writing to the church 
to affirm them in their salvation. Verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life. Interesting order that uh, John gives here, because in our world, how do people pass from life into death, right? But in God's kingdom, we pass from death, meaning dead in our sins into the power of sin into life through freedom in Christ bought by the cross and his resurrection. We move from death to life because we love the brethren. How we treat one another is important. So the question is, what does love, according to God's word, actually look like? How can we tangibly grab a hold of that? How can we identify it? Because there's a lot of sayings in our world Or there's a lot of manipulation in our world. Hey, love is love. If you love that person or that thing, then you should have all rights to do and you fill in the blank. How do we define love? What does that practically look like? Verse 16 gives us the definition. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let me read that again. By this, meaning what John is about to describe, we know love because he laid down his life for us. Therefore, what is the definition of love? It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Love is divinely defined By the sacrificial life of Jesus. Love is divinely defined by the sacrificial life of Jesus. I put divinely in there for a purpose. It cannot be redefined by culture. It cannot be redefined by an organization. It cannot be redefined by a movement. It is defined by the sacrificial life of Jesus. This is how we know love. Uh, Most of you have probably been to a wedding where 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 7 is taught. Um, We're going to look at that. And I want you for just a moment. It's not wrong to be in the marriage context with that, but it's not actually the context of what's being written in 1 Corinthians. I want you to think of how Paul is describing love and why it matters to us and how we spot counterfeits Versus how we see what is actually true. You with me? All right, here we go. We're going to look at it on our screens. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Stop there. Patient usually means this. Endures affliction. If you have to be patient with someone, is that comfortable for you or more difficult for you? It's definitely more difficult, right? Patience often requires affliction on our part in order to allow someone else grace, in order to let them get up to speed, in order to let them see the error of their way, in order to just simply wait. Patience requires affliction on our part. Love is patient and kind. A kindness probably doesn't need to be defined, but it can be everything from the the tone that you use with people to the body posture that you have. It can be remembering somebody's name. It can be being intentional with what you remembered about last week and asking about it, kindness. But let me make something clear about kindness. 
Kindness is not concession. We can be kind to people who have very different viewpoints from Christ, but we should not concede the truth of God's word. Amen? Amen. You can be patient and kind without conceding to what the world tries to tell you is love or what is right. Love is not jealous, which simply means we're not worried about our right standing with God. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to show you a certificate approved by man to go, well, now I've reached where I need to go. Now I am somebody. It's not jealous. It's not boastful or proud or rude. Um, When I look at Pride Month for our country, and you have all of these pride parades, in the name of love, people do this. The problem is, is that it's boastful. It's proud, literally pride, or it's rude. It's in your face. It's shoved down our throats. It's debaucherous. This is not love because it's not sacrificial. It's self-serving. It's taking what I want from other people for my own pleasure. To, produce, to, to promote my own agenda, whatever it is. We continue. You guys still with me? It does not demand its own way. Here's what that means. We don't get into a marriage and go, hey, as long as you do for me, I'll do for you. We're in this 50-50 thing. It's going to be great. That's how the world defines marriage. That's a problem. Thank goodness our relationship with Jesus Christ isn't that way. Could you imagine if he said, hey, as long as you don't sin, we're going to be good. (laughs) We'd be in so much trouble. Instead, it's his sacrificial love for us that he lays down his life even while we were still sinners so that that love covers the multitude of our sins when we ask for forgiveness, when we ask for repentance. Love does not demand its own way. It's sacrificial. It's not irritable. Anybody struggle with that one? And it keeps no record of being wrong. That's a hard one, isn't it? How many of you look forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas? How many of you also get stressed out at Thanksgiving and Christmas? Why? Relatives. Relatives. Thank you. One person was willing to like shout it out. (laughs) Because family is notorious for keeping a what? A record of wrongs. So that when you show up at that Thanksgiving table, they're like, so... How's that business proposal you did last year? You mean the one where I messed up the numbers, Uncle Bob? Thanks a lot. It it didn't happen. It's not going well. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice about injustice or iniquity. To me, this is the biggest tell of what is a counterfeit love. If any kind of love is rejoicing in unrighteousness, is going against God's ways and his word, It is not love, no matter what way it tries to be spun. It's just not. Because it becomes self-serving. I'm going to make an exception for sin so that I can have it my way. The problem is, sin does what? It leads to death. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. We can't make exception for that. Therefore... 
It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. I love this. Do you know how I know I'm loved by Pastor Dave? Because he feeds my life with truth, even when it's hard for me to have to hear it. And this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. He left heaven and came to earth to be someone who stood perfectly for God's truth, which means he cared less about being liked and more about preaching what was right. That is a tough line to toe, isn't it? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you struggle with not being liked by people? It bothers you when they don't like you. But this is what it means. Love rejoices whenever the truth wins out, which means if you have to have a hard conversation with your kids, you can do that in love. And the way you do that in love is by being truthful and patient and kind, but truthful with a coworker, with a neighbor whose dog keeps pooping on your lawn. Listen, there's nothing wrong with going over there and saying, hey, Frank, Roscoe just pooped for the third time this week. It's not okay. I still love you as my neighbor. And by the way, I still picked it up. But how can we resolve this issue? Now, that's a silly example, but you get my point, right? Much bigger things in our life to confront. But telling someone the truth is doing what? Is loving them. That is love. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. In other words, Romans chapter 8 reminds us, nothing can separate us from God's love. If this is what Christ has done for us, in John 1, 3, 16, it says, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, which simply means we take the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us and we begin to put that into practice. Now, what does this look like practically? Look at verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. John simply puts some muscle on the bones. Hey, take a look at your life. What has God gifted you of this world? Is it time? Is it money? Is it food? Is it skills or talents or giftings? And if there is a brother or a sister in need within the church body, and you're in relationship with them, naturally, the outflow of being in a relationship with Jesus will provide what? You will come alongside them. You will build them up. You will share what you have. But if someone shuts up his heart, why would somebody shut up their heart? Why would someone not give to the person next to them in need? For what reason? Self-promotion, self-righteousness, building their own empires. 
One is manifesting righteousness of Jesus. The other is manifesting the ways of Satan himself. It's not hard to see, but it's an easy test for our life. How are we treating the body of Christ? How are we coming alongside our brothers and sisters? John then says, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Um, I don't think this needs a lot of explaining. If I tell my wife that I love her, but there's no follow-up actions, my words are just words. It means nothing. If someone says, I love you, what is the expectation? There should be actions. You should feel it. You should see it. You should know it. You should be assured. It's constant. It's regular. It's something that is always happening. This is what God is doing for us. When we do what is right, it assures us of our salvation. When we sin and we repent, it does what? Assures us of our salvation. We are constantly being reminded of his love for us. Is that how we are living in relationship with one another? And listen, John's not saying you have to be best friends with everybody in your church. That's not possible. But let's say you're in a mission group. Um, I love what I've seen in some of our mission groups. Watching the mission group come alongside a family who is entering from this world into eternity with Jesus. And literally there, almost 24-7, on a clock rotation. Giving of their time. Giving up of things that I'm sure that they might rather be doing. Why? Because the love of Christ is in them. And it's pouring from them into others. The love of the brethren. John then says in verse 20. For if our heart condemns us. Well, is your heart ever going to condemn you? Absolutely. It's always going to be condemning us. As a matter of fact, not only will our heart condemn us, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, says that the accuser, Satan, stands before God night and day, accusing the brethren, telling God how bad we are. Of course, our heart's going to condemn us, but the beauty of what John says is, God is greater than our heart. Even when you don't feel like God loves you, aren't you glad that God's love isn't based on your feelings? So that we can go back to the truth of his word and be reminded of his love. Verse 22. The result of all of this. The result of abiding in a relationship with Jesus. The result of receiving his love, his work, and then putting that into action. Is the alignment of our heart with God's. Verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Uh, we know that taken out of context, this verse can be severely abused. This is not the free golden ticket to whatever we want. But when we are walking with Jesus Christ, we begin to think and to desire the very things that he desires. So that when we ask for things according to his will, what is his promise in verse 22? We will receive them because it's what God desires also. Answered prayer often comes from being aligned with God's heart. Answered prayer often comes from being aligned with God's heart. 
Because whatever we ask that is good and pure and right and lovely and not self-seeking or self-righteous or self-promoting. God desires to do in our life. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And then verse 23 where we'll finish today. And this is his commandment. That we should believe on the name of his son Jesus. And love one another as he gave us commandment. I love what John does in the simplicity of tying this all together. Church family, here's the commandment from God. Believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when we believe, the natural outpouring of his work in us is the second part of this commandment, which is to what? To love one another. John 13, 34, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. This is why Jesus came to earth in bodily form, in relationship, because the way that Jesus lived in relationship with his disciples, let the world know that they were loved, that this was different. This was sacrificial agape love. Not the world's self-seeking and counterfeit loves. Church family, I encourage you this week. Take note of how you're loving one another. Be reminded in both the good works that you do and in your repentance of sin of the work that has been done for you in Jesus Christ. Be assured of your salvation as you walk with him. And if you find yourself knowing that you are not saved because you don't walk with him, the door is wide open. His love is enduring. His desire is for you to walk in step with him. And when you ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to be in relationship with each one of us. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.